Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is episode 12, Teaching in Virtual Reality. So welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. In this episode, we're doing an interview with Dr. Tony Chaston, who's an associate professor at the Department of Psychology at Mount Royal University. Hey, Tony, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It is a pleasure to have you here today. For those of us, or for those of the listeners who are not aware, uh, Tony and I both work at the same institution. Being the psych librarian, Tony and I work quite closely, but I am super stoked to have you here on this podcast to talk about your teaching and particularly your VR work and your interest in research and stuff like that. So thanks yeah, for being here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, lots of different things to talk about and lots going on. Yeah, and we have a ton of stuff, quite a few questions lined up, so I'll get started. So the first one is one that we, we typically start with most of our guests. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? So that could be, you know, where you did your education, uh, how long you've been teaching, research interests, stuff like that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm old now. So I got my bachelor's degree back in 1995 at the University of Alberta in uh, in Canada in Edmonton. And uh, I actually was there forever. Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Alberta as well. So I got my PhD from there. Um, so that was in 2000. And after that, I worked for four years at Keanu College in Fort McMurray, uh, which is a small community college and got my feet wet learning how to teach. It was an incredible opportunity, actually. I loved it. Um, and then uh, I've been at Mount Royal for the last 13 years, um, teaching there and uh, doing research, uh, that sort of thing. So um, I guess from a teaching point of view, uh, my main focus is really on two areas. So one is my sort of topic area, sensation and perception. So I teach a course in that. And really, I mean, we focus on things like uh, depth perception, visual attention. How do you pay attention to things in the world? And um, how do you identify what objects are? Like, how do you know that's a book and that's a pen? You know, those sound like simple questions, but actually they're kind of hard to understand how our brain sorts that out. So so my, my interest has always been in like how the how the world takes in, sorry, how our brain takes in light through our eyes and how our brain then processes that information um, and how we use that information, visual pathways, and really how that information is used to make decisions and how we interact with the world, and particularly spatial things. So I've always been interested in spatial recognition, like um, environments, how we travel in outdoor environments, how we figure out how far we've gone and how much time we've been traveling for, and just how we perceive those visual spaces. So that's sort of my... Um, my well it's my topic area that is sort of a research area and then a teaching area and then my other main teaching area is in research design so i teach uh, junior level and senior level courses at mount royal in how to design research studies in in psychology interesting and have you have you taught for your research design i'm curious because i've actually never asked you is that everything from qualitative quantitative design like both sides of a coin 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, in in psychology, we tend to focus a little bit more on quantitative because um, we tend to approach it more like a science. And so we use that scientific method approach and tends to be a little more quantitative. Um, but certainly within the field of psychology, you've seen a real growth in qualitative research techniques. So um, to me, it feels like in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, qualitative research has taken a lot of steps forward in becoming a much more, um, I don't know, structured is the right word, but uh, just the, the methodologies have been fleshed out a lot more. And so we've started to incorporate more of that into psychology, both from a research point of view and then in turn from the courses in a teaching perspective as well. So yeah, we cover a little more quantitative than qualitative, but yeah, we cover the whole range. Very interesting. And, and it's interesting that you talk about perception because I think it, it's a perfect segue into what I think we're going to be talking about most, which is virtual reality. So I, I know that virtual reality has been a big scholarly interest for you. Also, you touch on it, I know, in your teaching. So I, we have lots of questions about what you've done in, in VR, which is kind of the primary thing today. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what got you into VR in the first place? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I love VR. <laughs> so I'm just going to start with that. I know you do. <laughs> I do. I really do. I love VR. It's so much fun. And there's so many things you can do with it. And so uh, I guess, how did I get into it? You want to actually, here's a funny little anecdote story. So my son, who is now in his early 20s, um, about five, six years ago, whenever it would have been when around the Oculus was coming out, the first, uh, you know, consumer VR devices were becoming popular. And uh, Google Cardboard came out. And most people are familiar with the Google Cardboard. You could fold it up, put your phone in it. And it was some, for most people, it was their first exposure to VR. And um, my son saw Google Cardboard and decided he was just going to make one on his own. So he got some cardboard and he got some lenses that he took out of some old kid's toy that he found. And he made a functioning Google Cardboard just on, out of his own stuff. And it was actually one of the first times I'd really looked at VR. And um, it immediately occurred to me how or sorry, what the potential benefit of this would be um, while doing research. So up to that point, most of the research I'd done had been showing people um, outdoor environments on screens. So I had done some research in the past where I'd actually taken people out on walks and gone out in the field. But as I'm sure everyone can understand, that's uh, technically difficult, logistically difficult, ethically difficult at times. So, um, so we've been doing a lot of research showing uh, videos on screens and even doing eye tracking with that. So we could um, bounce um, infrared off of the person's eyes and back and we could track where they look on the screen. So really useful and interesting research. But then I saw VR and all of a sudden I realized instead of just showing them this little square that's in front of them, I can have the environment all the way around them. And that allowed, it immediately realized it allowed me to explore a lot of other theoretical concepts in navigation and spatial awareness and spatial perception that I wouldn't be able to do on a flat screen. So that was really the genesis of kind of where it actually started for me, um, was literally with Google Cardboard and playing around with it. Um, and, and it just, it seemed obvious pretty quickly. I had no idea that your son was the built something that got you interested. I yeah, it's, no all, it's actually pretty funny. Yeah. So you, you touched on this. So this is a good segue again. So you touched a little bit about your research in VR and, and perception. So I, I'm more familiar with that from when I first came to Mount Royal. So could you talk a little bit about some of the, I don't know, some of the nature work that you've done in VR, some of the lab work that you've done in VR. Could you, could you talk a little bit about what you've been doing, particularly in that psych VR lab? Because I think that's where you've done a lot of the perception and the therapy stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, we have the uh, at Mount Royal, we have a, a facility called the Center for Psychological Innovation, uh, kind of a big lab facility that we use there. And in that space, we were able to build a couple of uh, VR research suites. So um, these are basically just rooms with VR equipment in them that allow us, you know, to do research in quiet, controlled environments. Um, and so that's with people actually coming into the lab and, and being participants in research studies right in the lab. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the research we've done in there, uh, you know, I, I guess to talk about research in VR, it's really important to point out that it is, it's like a set of steps and stages, especially when you're, it, as any researcher, when you're diving into a new kind of research area, you have to start cautiously and, and start with basic proof of concept, right? And so some of the very first studies we did, maybe going back five years, were as simple as showing people three VR environments and just looking at what effect it had on them. So I guess... I can summarize and say most of the research follows sort of a general pattern. So basically we, we test to see how much anxiety you're currently feeling, stre usually stress. We're not, we're not talking about clinical anxiety here. We're just talking about people dealing with stress. And um, so we measure how much stress you're currently feeling. Then we expose you to some kind of VR that should potentially lower your stress level. And then we, um, retest your stress level. So the idea being that if we wanted to lower your stress level, the VR should lower it, and then we should be able to see a difference between the pre-test scores and the post-test scores. Now, that's a real simple generalization of the idea, but um, yeah, we started there because, I mean, the very first step was we really didn't know if you put VR, a VR gear on somebody's head and you get them in there we had no idea if this was going to potentially lower their stress level or raise their stress level. I mean, one of the, I mean, I'm talking about stress now and I, I didn't really jump into that. You know, I kind of just jumped right down that road, but um, it is something that the, the research evolved into. I didn't come into it from a clinical background. As I, I mentioned, I came into it more from this experimental navigation, spatial perception background. Um, but you could see pretty quickly the potential of VR as a therapeutic technique, um, exposing people to natural environments that lowers their stress level. And so that's what we were trying to explore. I mean, there's a lot of research out there uh, exploring the idea. So not in VR, there's a lot of research exploring the idea that nature can lower stress levels. This is fairly well understood. It's well established in the, in the academic literature. And so really the logic at some point was as simple as, gee, I wonder if that would work in VR, you know, like if it works in the natural world and we can simulate the natural world in VR, maybe it would work in VR. And then that provides opportunities for things like um, self-guided uh, uh, treatments where someone at home can basically put on the VR gear and go through this experience without having to necessarily um, have a psychologist in front of them or even pay for a psychologist in some cases. So we're really starting to play around over the time. We've evolved from just showing people environments and starting to understand how they perceive them to trying to actually do sort of... Um, I don't know if I'd go quite as far as to call it a clinical trial, but actually starting to work with people who are dealing with stress and anxiety um, and exposing them to these virtual environments and looking at different ways to measure um, their stress level. So using both sort of questionnaires and physiological measures, uh, things like that. So that's, that's a lot of what we've been doing. Um, I was, I'm kind of curious, Tony, just to interject, because I know that yeah, that's yeah. a perfect, that's a perfect uh, picture you've painted of the, of the lab. And I like that. And, and, you know, I have seen it, and it's a really cool space. I mean, it, it really is a great, consistent space, like you said, for a quiet, uh, good for uh, replicability and stuff like that if you wanted to run them. I know that you've done a lot of work because I know that you're an avid 
hiker and you like outdoors and camping and you've done mm -hmm. a lot of work taking your own footage for that research. Could you talk a little bit about how you kind of put that together? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, that's um, my research and my personal interests have always been really connected that way. Like the outdoor perception all comes from my love of being outdoors in the mountains and hiking and backpacking and all the rest of that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so one of the things I started to do was to shoot my own video stimuli for the research. So getting three sixty cameras that I could take out in the field and start shooting nature scenes. Um, there's some real benefits to that in that when you are the researcher and you're the person shooting the video, you can customize the video to exactly what you want for the research project that you're currently working on. So there's some real benefits there. Um, the downside, of course, is then you have to do all the work. <laughs> you have to go out there and actually take the time to do it. And, and um, VR shooting took a long, well, I wouldn't say a long time to learn, but it's a different skill set. You know, m most of us think about taking a picture with a camera and you think about framing that shot, right? Where the things you want in the picture are in front of you. And then when you start to work with 360 video, it's not about what's in front of you. You have to be in the middle of the action and the action all around you. And so it takes a, takes a little while to learn how to frame a shot and what actually works well. Um, but not that long, a little bit of practice. It's just new and different. So, it, you know, fun to play with. But yeah, the nice thing about being able to shoot my own videos is I got that customization. And then later, I'm sure we'll talk about it coming up, um, beyond just shooting my own video, actually moving into digital environments like software, uh, where you get even more control of your environment. But the, the benefit to the photo stuff, the video stuff, is it's uh, photorealistic, obviously, unlike video game environments that don't have that same sense of photorealism. So it just yeah, depends on, yeah. yeah, it just depends on what stimuli are appropriate for the kind of research you're doing at that. And having put on the headsets where I've, I've witnessed and experienced the actual 360 video, you're all right, because it does really feel like you're there. And I guess I'm curious a little bit about, do you think that for, and I and based on your research or, what, or the literature that's been done, do you think that for virtual reality to kind of lower that anxiety, like a real natural environment, does it have to have that photorealistic look? I guess the question, the reason I ask is because I know that in, in video game development, they're always straddling between the photorealism and then that, that artistic kind of uh, not cartoony feel because they don't want to hit that kind of uncanny valley where things right. are kind of weird. So right. is that is that something that you, even if there's no evidence yet, that you think may be the case for lowering anxiety? Is there a threshold that you have to hit for realism? Um, my suspicion is there isn't a threshold you have to hit. I think that the different type of stimuli um, provide different types of experiences. And certainly with the, with the videos or, or photos, if I'm taking that, I usually use videos, but um, with those, yeah, obviously the photorealism is great. It's all the detail is there. That's hard to simulate like the little subtle movements of the leaf in the wind. Yeah. You can do some of that in, in digital environments, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? Um, and then there's, you know, there's a bunch of other challenges with that, which is uh, 3D versus 2D. So what I mean by that is in VR, I can have my, I can have an experience where the left eye and the right eye see the same image. So that's binocular display. It's going to both eyes, but it's a monocular scene that they're seeing. The left and right see the same image where normally like, in my day-to-day -day life, when I look out at the world, my left eye and my right eye see slightly different angles of the world. And that's part of how we get some of our depth perception, right, is these two different angles. So to shoot 3D VR video, 
requires a camera that has a cluster of lenses all the way around pointing in each direction, usually at least eight, you know, 16 would be better, you know, and then the software has to merge all of those to create a left and right eye image that blends together. If you can do that, you have true 3D visual, uh, a visual scene for people. But the challenges around that are the cameras are not... The, the consumer level cameras that are sort of say under $5,000 are still pretty, well, they're not great yet to be, to be absolutely, absolutely honest. They're not great. And then the other ones are just simply too expensive. So there's some benefits to photorealism, but then the benefits to digital is that even more customization. So if I'm designing um, an experiment and I want an independent variable, I can exactly manipulate that independent variable without changing the other things in the scene. And that is really hard to do with photorealism because you might want one scene, you know, one element in the scene and then another element in a different scene, but then it's hard to get all the other things the same, you know, so you're only manipulating the one part of the scene that you want, right? That's harder to do with photos and video. So again, it just depends on what's appropriate. Um, right now, one of the studies we're working on, we're working on using a, um, completely digital environment um, created in Unity, a, so, uh, a 3D software development. Uh, and um, using that scene, and it's a, a garden. So like a, almost like a, imagine an old English garden. Um, ever seen the movie The Secret Garden from way back yep. in the day? I'm dating Edges. myself again. Yeah, yeah. and fountains. And flowers and yeah, all of that. So I built one of those in VR. And that's one of the things we're going to be using to see if we can use digital environments to reduce stress levels. So people are just going to be able to free explore that environment. And then, so then we're getting into all kinds of other things in the current research, which is including things like guided imagery. So guided imagery is a strategy that's used um, for lowering stress levels in people. And it's usually a technique between a, um, a participant and uh, a clinician. And uh, the I'm not an expert. I'm not a clinical expert. This is not my area of expertise um, in terms of the uh, the clinical part and working directly with the patients. That's why I collaborate with clinical people on these kinds of projects. Um, and I'm currently collaborating with Jane, a lady named Jane, who's a former uh, student of mine, but is now actually a clinician herself. So as the years have gone on and she's come back and we're working together and uh, she does guided imagery. And so she's providing guided imagery for these. So what you might have is in one case, a situation where someone free explores the garden with just ambient sounds of birds and the rest of it. In another case, they might explore that garden, but have um, a guided imagery audio presentation going on at the same time, talking about breathing and what they want to focus on. And so we can do, we can combine those things. But then what's even more interesting is we can use the guided imagery as a sort of uh, control group or baseline to see if the VR environments work on their own. So you can have some people have the VR environment, some people have just the guided imagery. Well, we know how we have some sense of how well guided imagery should work. And so we can use that as sort of a comparison, like does this new VR technique work as well as guided imagery? Does it work worse than guided imagery or better? Or maybe when we put them together, we get some kind of new, really cool effect. Um, so that's the kind of research we're kind of exploring more recently. Very interesting. I think that's a that's a perfect segue into moving into some of the work that you've done in terms of teaching. So I'm going to introduce this, but I'm going to let, uh, well, not let, but Chris is going to ask more of the questions around teaching because I, I already have this inside knowledge, so it's, it's not really fair. So you're currently developing a course that's intended to be entirely conducted in a virtually environment, entirely conducted in a virtual environment. 
So full disclosure to listeners, uh, I'm one of the m small members of this project team in addition to uh, Dr. Evelyn Field uh, from the Department of Psychology at MRU, as well as Anna Noon at MRU Library. I'll have to ask them if they want to be in this. Um, <laughs> and so we have a number of questions around that. So Chris, did you want to ask Tony those? For sure. So um, Tony, uh, what content do you hope to cover in this course? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, quite a bit of things. I mean, the really, uh, I guess the focus is it's, um, it's a psychology course that I'm developing for the Department of Psychology, a senior level course. Um, and yeah, as Eric was just saying, the entire course will be taught in virtual reality. So we're going to be using the, um, the platform Altspace, which is a social VR platform. Um, that basically right now anyone can go, you can download Altspace and you can start building 3D worlds pretty quickly in there and you can inhabit them and you can invite your friends. Um, anyone can pick this up pretty quickly. Uh, but then the one thing that Altspace has is a lot of teaching tools uh, for teaching in these environments. And so what I've decided to do is then if I'm going to teach a psychology course in virtual reality, there's got to be some reason why it's in virtual reality, right? I can't just go, hey, let's just stick it in virtual reality. So uh, pedagogically, it kind of makes sense because the content of the course is related to that. So the focus of the course is really on artificial intelligence and uh, virtual reality, but it is the psychology of those components. So how do we perceive an AI? How would we then, based on that perception we have of an AI as a, say, another cognitive creature, how would we then choose to interact with that AI? So that'll be a component of the course. So, you know, you've got to teach the students the basics of like, um, you know, narrow artificial intelligence and general artificial intelligence. And, you know, we'll deal with things like the digital singularity and um, oh, a whole bunch of different types of, of things like that uh, the, to basically lead us in that direction of understanding the relationship between us and these pieces of technology that we're going to interface with. And so I'm really interested in that interface part from the psychology perspective and specifically then from a perception perspective. So how do I perceive a virtual environment? How do I perceive an artificial intelligence? And as a result, that will influence the way I interact with them, uh, what choices I make, how I want to interact with them, or even if I want to interact with them. I mean, so just out of curiosity, how does this course work or, or how do you envision it? Would all the students be going into like putting on um, a VR set and being in there while you're in there as well? Yeah, that's the idea with this course. So this is a fully immersive virtual reality course. So the students will have a class time, but their classroom will be our virtual space. So they will, um, one of the things we decided to do, uh, it being a university course, we sort of were looking at the cost and how do we um, get people to access VR headsets. Uh, we looked at the idea of like maybe getting a pool of them and renting them out, that kind of thing. But there's, you know, obviously all kinds of problems associated with that hygienically, logistically, you know. Um, and what we realized is easier is simply telling students you don't have to buy a textbook, but buy your own VR headset. And they'll just need to buy an entry level one for this course. It won't need anything fancy. So um, the cost of that's come way down to under a couple hundred dollars now. So um, so <laughs> printed textbooks cost that much. So uh, so that's so so that's the plan in terms of getting students into the class. And yeah, the idea is that I will custom build a virtual place that will be, say, we'll call it a virtual classroom. Though. I've realized pretty quickly I don't need classrooms per se. I'm mostly using outdoor nature spaces. So I'm teaching from a forest or on the edge of a mountain or, you know, these kinds of locations. And then um, 
the students would be right in there with me. Um, Altspace will allow us as a whole group to teleport to different environments. So I can have the whole class in one environment. We could do a lesson there for say 15 minutes in an environment that I built just for teaching that lesson. So let's say we're talking about the eyeball just using that as an example, I might bring in a model of a giant eyeball and the whole class might sit in the middle of it and I might go around and point things out and show stuff. And then when we're done that, we move on to the next topic. I can throw up a portal. We all kind of, our avatars all just run into it. We teleport over to a different virtual space that's set up for a different lesson. So that's kind of the idea of how the course would run um, and the students would experience that right in the classroom. So we'll see if that works. It's a pretty amazing experience once you've tried Altspace VR. I mean, when you described it to me originally, I was thinking, oh, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> but when you get in, I mean, because it, it's hard to fathom until you've been in the platform, but it, it was so easy to create an account, just like anything. It was so easy to jump in. Once we were friended, it was like, go to Tony, and then I'm in this world, and I could just follow you. Like, it was surprisingly seamless using that platform. Yeah, that's one of the reasons um, we chose Altspace. So, um, and this is part of the project that Eric is also involved with. In the earlier stages, we looked at a number of the different um, VR social platforms uh, as potentials for um, teaching this course in. And we went with Altspace for a variety of reasons. One, ease of use and ease of access. Um, it's cross-platform, which is really nice. So it works on almost any platform of both VR headgear and PC. Um, so that's handy. Um, so platform's a big deal. Uh, free is a big deal, especially when we're dealing with students. We don't want them to have to pay for a service up front just to, you know, to get access. So there's a bunch of things like that. And the other thing that um, is really interesting about Altspace is they've really been making a push recently to develop a lot of uh, event management tools. So there's a lot of things behind the scene. Like when I'm in Altspace and I'm inhabiting my avatar and I'm in a room and I'm looking out at people and maybe I'm giving a presentation, something like that. I also can have menus floating up around me that the audience can't see. So I can have a menu floating beside me that has like a speakers list. So people, there's a, a simple way when people are in the room, they can do a little click. It'll they'll show up in my speakers list. I can mute the whole rest of the room, uh, give them the megaphone so they can talk and everyone in the room can hear them easily. Uh, then I can mute them. I can answer. Like there's a lot of management tools starting to develop in the background, more and more and more of them for creating events, inviting people, managing larger events. Um, Altspace has moved into a world now where they're hosting sort of large scale conferences all the time now. It seems like there's one there almost every week, some kind of large education in VR kind of conference going on. There was recently students in VR did a conference, a three-day conference. Um, and these are wonderful because they're just room events and anyone can just drop in and there's presentations and fantastic people from all over the world can present. That's very interesting. I mean, I, a lot of times when I'm going and consulting with clients, uh, uh, I sometimes ask them the question of, um, you know, or I make the statement, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I mean, uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all this. Like I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, how would I make this work for my own courses? And uh, I mean, uh, even just 
how did you even uh, get the notion of this? Like what made you want to teach an entire course in VR? Um, because I have problems, I would guess. No. <laughs> um, I, I like to torture myself. I don't know. Aspirations. Um, Let's go with yeah, aspirations. Actually, the truth be told, I was really excited about the challenge of it, to be honest with you, um, because it was something new and something different. And, um, you know, I, I'm always interested in trying something new and different, right? That's that's the fun of what we do as uh, academics, right? We get this luxury of, of being able to play a little bit. And so um, I, I also think that there's a few other things that are important there. So one is that there is sort of an inevitable future of education in VR. And... I mean, it doesn't, if you, so when I explain what I'm doing to people, I get this kind of reaction from people that is like, wow, really that's happening in VR? That's all going on already? And I'm like, yep, that's going on. And so uh, for a lot of people, it's still a bit of a leap. But for those of us that are working in it, it's amazing how quickly it all just becomes normalized. Like the, all this kind of VR activity and going into these events and all that just seems pretty normal to me. And I haven't even been doing it that long. Do you know what I mean? It's just... Um, and so it seems inevitable to me that um, education will go down this road. Now, not completely. I don't think it's going to take over face-to-face -face interaction. I mean, it's one thing to say set up a simulation where someone can learn how to use the tools for, say, doing archaeology research. It's a whole other thing to actually be out there in the field and find a fossil, right? You're not going to simulate that in VR in any effective way. But... Um, VR as a teaching tool is incredible because you can put people in dangerous environments. You can put people uh, like, let's say you want to train someone to do a task, but that task is in a physically dangerous place in the real world, or it costs a lot of money to get to that place or be in that place. You can simulate those things in VR and train people in those tasks and activities. And so you're seeing it in academia already, all through universities um, and private enterprise. When I'm in uh, alt space, um, I, so I took some courses in Unity this spring, and I took them in VR. So the actual classes were sort of just what I'm talking about. We all logged in with our VR headsets. We showed up, and the teacher, uh, a, a man named Nicholas, who is running this, um, he runs uh, a... a a VR school he calls Universe, and it's fantastic. And he's teaching, um, it's called Computing Science in VR. And he does most of it through Altspace as the platform. And yeah, we met as a class, and we met every week, and we had study groups on Wednesday nights, and we all showed up in our VR headsets, and we worked on stuff. Um, we could put our, when we were working in Unity, um, normally Unity would be, you know, on your PC desktop working away. We could project that up to screens in VR. So one person could be working and have it up on the screen and all the rest of us in VR could see their code or see their, um, their scene or whatever they were working on. And we could all work on it together. Um, Nicholas can bring in animations like 3D object animations where this object moves across the room and hits that one to show us something, you know. Um, so it's actually all happening. This, this VR education is actually happening. There's, there's a lady named uh, Laurel. She is part of Educators in VR, one of the head people of Educators in VR. And she's probably, she's in alt space every day. And she's probably one of the most uh, experienced VR teachers in the world. She teaches many, many sessions every day. And so there's a lot of people that actually are already building up um, quite a, a lot of experience of how to teach in VR. And amongst us, there's a lot of conversations going on about best practices and pedagogy and how to do this because it's all new for everybody, right? And so it's a really exciting time to be part of it. So I think that's part of it. I mean, inevitably, the bigger picture um, in terms of why, uh, you know, where I see VR in education um, 
if I can teach a class, it doesn't take much to figure out. It wouldn't actually even take me that long to build a sort of a mock-up of the Mount Royal University campus and start having a Mount Royal VR. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where students literally portal into the campus and they could walk around campus and they could go to their classroom. When they go through that door, then they're in that world of the classroom with the teacher. They could portal out and walk around. Like you can see this is not very far in the future. And, um, uh, it'll have some benefits in terms of cost, obviously, to teach a course that doesn't require brick and mortar buildings is obviously going to be cheaper. But of course, there's some downsides to it. But And then the one last thing, I really do want to throw one more thing in on this topic about why um, I want to teach in VR. And um, maybe I'm babbling here, but this one's important, I think, is that it's so much better than a Zoom meeting. <laughs> Because most, most people have been in a lot of Zoom meetings by this point, and they all kind of like, you know, we kind of log on and we chat a little bit. And then all of a sudden, there's this point where like, it kind of comes to an end, and all the screens just kind of click off and people kind of disappear and it's over. And when you teach in VR, you get a different kind of environment, you get it's more like a real classroom, you're there, five, 10 minutes before people start appearing in the room, their avatars show up, they form little groups of two and three, and they chat about the stuff that's going to happen and what's going on. And then they ask a few questions. And then after the class, people hang out and they stay around, some stay around and chat with the teacher. And like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's more like a real classroom. It's like this experience we can have where we're in there together learning. And I don't know if Zoom creates Zoom Google Meets. I'm not picking on Zoom. I mean, it's just that format. I don't know if it it doesn't create that same kind of feeling of community and uh, class, you know, and I don't mean class is classy. I mean, the sense of being part of a class. Um, well, it's not an immersive environment, right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I mean, it, in my mind, uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, we should be writing a blog post on it. And I think we are working on one, but uh, these, even these zoom tiles, it reminds me of like, um, uh, there was uh, Hollywood squares or mm -hmm. the Brady bunch. And <laughs> I really don't know if there's uh, what the point is for us to be staring at a grid of bunch of people. And, you know, uh, I, I just don't see the value there. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I, I've, I've moved to, um, even for the, the upcoming semester where I'm teaching classes, um, our university, Mount Royal University, is online for the fall semester, obviously with COVID-19. So our university has chosen to do online courses for the fall. And for those, what I'm actually going to do is I'm still going to leverage my VR content in that I'm going to be in those virtual environments, just like I was sort of describing um, teaching a class in VR, except the students won't be there with me. I'll have a camera in there with me. I can shoot myself teaching shoot videos of myself teaching in virtual reality, bringing in whatever props I want and taking advantage of all of that manipulation and control you can do in VR, shoot those as videos. And then I'll be using the videos as teaching resources for my students um, instead of being able to be there to do a live classroom for them. So, so I'm still going to leverage the same stuff, even though the students aren't actually going to be in there. So out of curiosity, Tony, like uh, with um, these virtual reality educators like how many of them are around in the world like this is the first time i've ever heard of anybody even wanting to teach in vr right when, uh, eric told me about this i was i'm like okay we got to bring this guy on <laughs> and I, I gotta figure this out um that's a great question how many are there i have no idea but here's what i do know i know that um educators in vr is a a group that um really promotes this idea of 
using education as a tool, or sorry, using virtual reality as a tool for education. And that is kind of their mission. And so to motivate that, one of the things they've been doing is, you know, really helping show people how to teach in this environment. That group has just exploded in size just since COVID-19, for example, there's a lot of people trying to find new ways to teach and to do new things. So there's been a massive explosion in um, virtual teaching just in the last six months. And then that group got so big, so quick, that it had to immediately divide into subgroups. So there's still, of course, educators in VR, but now there's a bunch of subgroups under educators in VR. Um, I, I help run one of them. So there's a, a team called Researchers in VR, a research team, and we run live events in virtual reality for um, people who want to learn about how to do research in a virtual platform. So a lot of us that are trying to do research in a virtual platform, we have a lot of similar problems, even though our research topics might be really different. Um, and so these are communities that come together to share knowledge and information. And our... Um, our researchers in VR events, which just started back in the spring, we, you know, we had, I mean, the very first one we were, I think there was 40 people could max out in the room and it filled up, you know, within seconds and the room was full. And I actually, the very funny thing is in that very first meeting, I had a technical problem, got kicked out of the room and I missed the whole meeting because I couldn't get back in because it was full. That was our very first meeting. Um, by a meeting about two months ago, we still had about 40 spots available because there's some limitations graphically about how many people you can have in the room and so forth. Um, I think we had over 200 people uh, RSVP that they were interested in joining the event. And we're just now that little group of researchers in VR under the heading of educators in VR. And educators in VR has a whole bunch of these subgroups that they're setting up in the process. So if the question is how many people are doing this now, there's a lot and it's exploding like crazy, both professional educators from the perspective of like academia, um, high school teachers and university teachers, but then also a huge collection of people from private industry who are involved in training, right? So they're developing training materials in VR. A lot of these people who used to say would go out to a company and train employees, they can't do that right now. So they're trying to find ways to do that using VR. So Is it's there exploding. in VR? <laughs> no, but you should start that group. Yeah, I could do it. I could, I could, maybe I'll pitch because I've been to the, I went to one of your talks in, mm -hmm. in, yeah, yeah. in VR, which I, is on YouTube, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Um, the so we talk, could link to that. Yeah. yeah, I gave a research talk in as part of that group. And then that was in the spring sometime, and that's on YouTube. And then I was also part of a three person, four person um, uh, panel on research in VR. Uh, that's also available on YouTube. That was also part of that same researchers in VR group that I help run and administrate. Um, we're, we're really looking at doing some interesting things in the future, ideas around um, uh, having days where we do community research design. So someone starts with a research question with real research they're trying to do, and maybe by the end of the hour, as a community, we can actually have that research project designed. So we're trying to do you know things like that, education and, and community research. So kind of having a lot of fun with it. Tony, you got me intrigued now. I mean, I'm actually kind of getting like excited about this. Let's say I want to go and get in and start teaching in VR and like, what do I need to know? What type of educational technologies did you need to learn or master to even get started in developing this course? Um, 
well, I, I learned more than you need. So because I want, I was also doing it for research. And so I wanted more control of the environment than you actually need. Um, you do not need to necessarily learn unity and all of these other complex software programs. Um, as Eric was saying earlier, it's pretty easy to go into alt space, jump in, set up an account, get your avatar and go. Once you are at that stage, you really just have to activate the world building in alt space and you can start building custom spaces and they have templates. So they have classrooms already set up, ready to go. You just go, I would like to use that classroom, click, and then that's your world now. And it has a screen all ready to go. And it, there's other little bits of software to learn if you want to, like, say, do the equivalent of a PowerPoint on that screen. There's another so little piece of software you use to help you do that. And so there's little bits and pieces to learn. But honestly, you could walk into Altspace, set up your avatar, and be in a classroom that's fully functional where you have all the host tools and all the rest of it. You could do that in half an hour. I mean, it'd take a little while to still learn how to use it all, but really it's pretty effective now. Like I, I, I was watching a video um, a little while ago. I, again, I don't have the link or anything, but it was a, a person who started the idea of wanting to teach classes in VR and they were teaching them by the end of the week. They were actually oh, wow. teaching their students in VR by the end of the week. So it's not that hard. So there's basically there a library of already pre-existing environments that you can go and, you know, have your choice. Like, let's say I, I want to teach a philosophy course and I want to get into Plato's Republic, into the uh, allegory of the cave. I can just find something that's similar to that and away I go. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... To some extent. So the alt space pre-made spaces are pretty straightforward and generic in that they have basic classrooms or sort of office meeting spaces or some, and they have quite a variety of different spaces. I mean, they even have some fun ones like um, sort of a template of a beach. So like the whole template is all there. And then once you're in there, you can use the world builder to add whatever you want, more palm trees or whatever, you know, a dog barking on the beach or whatever it is you might want to add. So even though they have the custom built environments, it's really just as simple as a couple of clicks and you have a floating menu in front of you. And from that, you can scroll through icons of objects and in, in, you know, different folders of objects. Let's say you want a car, you just go, okay, city props, uh, cars, there they are. And you click a car and it appears in front of you and you can make it bigger or smaller and you can stick it where you want, you know, then you can delete it. You can change its color, whatever, you know? Um, so, it's really pretty simple to get started, but if you want to really customize your environments, like really have control over the, all the details of the environment, kind of more at the level that I, I feel like I need for my research, where I want to customize every element in the in environment because it's all stimuli my participants are going to see. It's all stimuli in research. So I want complete control. For that, I would recommend sort of moving into the level of kind of learning unity. And uh, again, that didn't really take it really didn't turn out to be as difficult as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking it was going to be pretty daunting, uh, this graphics program. Um, again, I'm, I'm a computer guy in that I'm pretty comfortable learning software, but it really wasn't as hard as I thought. And to be honest with you, taking these courses in virtual reality to learn it was fantastic. We had our classes in VR, and then we worked in Unity when we were outside the classroom, right? And uh, so that really helped. So, so with Unity, like, do you need to know how to program or code or anything? No, not really. Um, you can. So it depends on what you're using Unity for. In my case, I'm simply using Unity to build environments and then porting those environments into alt space. Uh, 
So Altspace doesn't actually allow you to upload scripts like script coding from Unity into Altspace because they sort of can't even tell if it's a virus that you're uploading into their system, right? So they don't allow you to upload scripts. Um, so by definition, you don't have to do script coding, really. I mean, you, I learned some of it to learn the basics, but even like animating objects to move around and do things doesn't even require scripting in Unity. You can do that without scripting. And so, yeah, you you can do more like, like, let's say you wanted to use Unity to make a video game where you actually had characters running around and they could shoot someone and that person died and then something else happened. And, you know, all of that interaction requires scripting, but just to build environments and then port them into alt space doesn't require scripting in Unity. Not, not general. And so, you know, you talked about earlier that you were going out, you know, backpacking, hiking, whatever, and you had this 360 camera so how how does that work? How do you do you need to know some editing or like uh... Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, editing 360 video is basically the same as editing regular flat screen video. Um, 360 video, when you get it off the camera, um, basically in most cameras it just appears in what's called equirectangular format. So imagine like a globe. You picture a globe and then you picture a flat map of the earth. That's basically what it's doing. It takes the 360 video and turns it into a flat screen projection. So that's just a flat screen and you edit it just the way you'd edit any other flat screen video. The only difference is it requires a little bit of, um, you have to kind of imagine what it's going to look like when it's wrapped back around your head in VR um, when you're working on it just on the flat screen. So. Um, but again, uh, so basically any basic video editor can do the job. The camera I use uh, for most of the stuff, to be honest with you, is just um, a 360 camera by GoPro. So it's, uh, it's, I was using the GoPro Fusion, and then now the new version is the GoPro Max. And uh, they're about $500 Canadian, and uh, they shoot 2D 360 video. So again, not the full 3D, but the 2D. Um, and of course, they're great for what I need because as we mentioned, I'm taking them out in the forest. I'm going backpacking and everything else. So the GoPro durability is really helpful. It's interesting, Tony, that I want to come back to what you said about kind of the standard, perhaps, or the influence that VR will have in teaching and learning. Uh, so in the future, do you think that for at least online education, VR will become the standard? And if, let's say, it, it's moving towards that or a, a larger percentage of VR teaching in the future, what are the hurdles that it has to overcome to be more mainstream? Yeah, there's definitely a few at this point. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a VR guy, but people say to me, should I buy VR? And I'm like, hmm, maybe. <laughs> Because it just depends on where you're at in the uh, in the cycle of the technology right now. The, the there's a few things that need to improve for sure. So I think most people who work in VR agree, the headsets need to get smaller and more compact and lighter and just you know not be these crazy giant things we mount on our heads. Um, ideally, obviously, most people are working towards the idea of something that's more like a pair of glasses that you put on. Um, so I think once we get to that kind of a stage, um, I think that'll be really beneficial. Just from my personal use of VR. I think one thing that would work really well is if you got to a stage where they were more like glasses and then it was way more easy, way more easy. That's excellent English. Way more easiest. I'm just going to speak my own language now. <laughs> um, so it's, um, oh, sorry. I'm having a little problem. <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought, Eric. Can you remind me a second where I was? I just had an issue there. 
What was I just saying right before that? Uh, the hurdles, the hurdles, right? And the, Sorry. And the technology and the glasses, right? So one of the things that will actually be beneficial is if you can get to a point where the glasses can be um, can have an image on them, so that you have that virtual experience. You f you you see the virtual world, so two screens in front of your eyes. But then those screens can immediately become pass through, so you can see the actual world in front of you as well. So the problem with VR is we get these VR things on our heads and then we can't really see the world around us. It makes people feel uncomfortable. It's one of the things that makes people feel uncomfortable about VR. So if you could have an easy pass-through system where you could see, um, and even the, the current systems do this, uh, some of the computer-based systems where there's a, um, a pass-through where there's cameras on the front and they literally take the video from the cameras on the front of the device and put them onto the screens right in front of your eyes. So it's sort of like you're just looking without the VR headset on. Um, but once that becomes uh, more effective, then you can also start to add uh, sort of that augmented reality stage. So that's the idea of I'm looking through the lenses and I'm seeing just the normal real world around in front of me, but then you add digital content into that. So um, then let's say I'm working on repairing something and I look at the engine or whatever I'm working on and a little arrow comes in and the bolt that I have to undo starts glowing. And so I'm seeing the real world, but I have added digital content in there. So that's more what we call augmented reality. So once we get devices like that, that can do VR, AR, and basically that whole XR world, um, then we're, I think that'll be, that'll be a major step forward in the, in basically in the ad adoption of VR more broadly. Um, no, Mike, cost say, is no, always Mike, a thing, but that's coming yeah. down a lot. Well, the cost I was going to say, and I know that um, companies like Microsoft have, tried to shift the language to more like mixed reality. Yeah. And I, and I have used HoloLens versions one and two. And while there are clear limitations, because you're, that's all, for those who don't know, that's the augmented reality headset. So you're seeing the real world, like, like you said, Tony, but things in front of you, especially with version two, while you are looking through a mail slot, you have a limited field of view. It is amazing. It works so much better in terms of holding its position in real space than I ever thought. Mm -hmm. But you make a very good point about the ease, of, the ease of use of being able to switch, even if they were just VR glasses and you wanted to switch between real life and VR. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when we met talking about your class project, you were saying stuff and I was like, oh, I want to write this down. So I would lift up the glasses, take notes, and then it was like, oh, he's not paying attention. It goes to sleep now, which is probably right. a setting. And then I was booted <laughs> out of the room and then you log back in. And then I thought, you know what? I can, I'm pretty good. I'll retype up my notes later. I'll just have a paper in front of me and write them down. And it was crazy because I yeah. was writing like in nowhere. And I was like, yeah, I need that ability to, do, to document, but yeah. also meet with people. Well, Eric, you've, you've targeted in at one of the major complaints that people do have like like when i talk to the community and educators in vr this is one of the other concerns that people have in vr right now is it's hard to interface so i can use the controllers to say manipulate objects and things like that but how do i write things down and take notes and that's the other element that is sort of lacking a little bit right now and and then there's there's some potential solutions to that so the idea of creating almost like floating notepads where you have a pen that you can literally just grab and write notes and then that can be saved to say a jpeg image and so you have your notes along with you so that's a, a kind of technique that's being used or um in some environments a little tricky in alt space but in some of the other 
platforms right now, the idea of having like big whiteboards around that you can write on the whiteboards in the VR spaces and then save the whiteboards as JPEGs, right? That kind of an idea. Um, so there's those kinds of solutions. And then there's also the other types of ones, which are like um, people are moving towards virtual desktops. Have you seen, some of you might've seen this idea. So the, the idea here is um, I use a, a headset that's connected to my PC and then my desktop, my say it's a Windows desktop is projected into my VR headset. So I, in VR, it's like I'm sitting there and I can have a whole bunch of windows out in front of me and those are actually the windows from windows, right? And so then I, I have a virtual keyboard in front of me that I can actually use and a virtual mouse. And so I can be in VR and do VR stuff and do non-VR stuff just on my desktop computer all from within VR. Again, great idea. The technology is almost there. The problem is some of the resolutions aren't good enough for reading documents. And, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. But this is just another solution that people are pursuing. But that, Have they tried uh, transcription services? Like, the, you know, one yeah, that we've talked about is Otter. Yeah, so so I know that Altspace is starting to look into that for educational purposes. So um, having... Uh, live subtitles is something that they're trying to work on. So the idea of the speaker speaking at the front of the room, and then there's sort of a translate that's going on and turning that into subtitles for audience members um, who are either, say, watching it on a YouTube stream or are in the room but don't have audio um, or are deaf, for that matter. Um, so, so there's there's things like that they're working on. Um, and then again, that could transcribe a meeting, right? So then you wouldn't have to take notes. You'd have a full transcription. So there's some benefits to that. So yeah, these are all things that are being worked on. It's like right now, the funny thing is, is most of the time people come up with ideas around VR and I'm like, yeah, I've heard someone's working on that. Yeah, I've heard someone's working on that too. It's like, there's a lot of people working on a lot of stuff and it's all coming real quick. So yeah, there's like, Altspace is crazy in terms of how much it's changed even just in the last six months. Like how many updates there have been and, and improvements in terms of uh, usability and the user interface. I mean, again, it has its limitations, but it's it's progressing so quickly. And have you uh, tried out um, the AR side of things as well? I really haven't. I haven't had an opportunity to play in that. I've been really focused in the VR world at this point, but um, I see AR. In many respects, AR has a lot more potential than VR in terms of um, really practical things like workplace training things like that. It feels like AR is a tool that could be really, really useful in those kinds of environments. Uh, actual usability, you know, someone's actually working, doing a job with uh, AR uh, information being added into their visual scene. Um, you can see just unlimited options for that and potential for that. Um, VR is, is more when you want someone to like completely be exposed to just your environment. You want to take them away from the, the world they're in right now and take them somewhere else. So again, they both have their uses. I just think that they're slightly different. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think certain places, like uh, I think the first time that I saw VR being used in a mainstream type of way was uh, when they did that tour of uh, Vimy Ridge. Mm. And, you know, especially if there's certain, like right now with COVID, I mean, if there's places uh, that are uh, really remote, you need access, you want to take a look at something like the, that, that could really be beneficial. But I also think that AR, just replicating those spaces, if you're in, let's say, for example, you took your class to the mountains and everybody had AR kind of like whether it's their phone or if it's uh, glasses or what have you, and you put these old hotspots and people had to interact with certain things, like half the battle's kind of already done because you don't have to create the mountains and the trees and everything. Right. 
Yeah, and I've been playing around with um, I've been playing around with trying to interface some of these. So one of the things I've I've been trying to do in alt space is to create. Um, a world that is like, let's say I create a, uh, a building and an area around that building with some trees and some other forest and things like that, el other elements, and build that as a piece of software, say in Unity or in the Altspace World Builder, and then merging that with, with what we call uh, skyboxes. So skyboxes like, imagine if you were in a scene and you look around, the, everything far off in the distance, the hills in the distance and the sky and all that, we call that a skybox. And so working with um, photo realistic skyboxes. So ones that I've actually taken like screenshots from videos or still 360 pictures, using those as the skyboxes and then building a digital space that sits in the middle of that. So you walk around and use the digital created space, but around you, when you look around, you see the photorealistic mountains and then trying to find way. The trick, of course, is getting the edges to blend together, right? So that it kind of like when you get to the edge, it doesn't start to look too weird. Um, but some of that has been pretty successful. I've had a few environments where it's really worked out really well. But again, it sometimes requires a lot of playing around with uh, size scaling and depth perception and, you know, things like that. But uh, so that's probably the closest I've come to using sort of something like an augmented reality in my research, but I haven't uh, had too much I, time to go there yet. I mean, one thing that I've seen at Mount Royal that's kind of interesting, um, uh, it was uh, actually um, a professor in information design, um, Melina, and she was projecting a 360 degree image in one of the rooms in the library. And then we had to go and walk around the actual room and you know, I love that room. Act activities in there. And so that was kind of cool. I mean, people are, again, they're, they're all looking at a, all the technology that's out there and it's just, uh, Oh, what can we do with this now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting room. That's uh, in the library, the new library at Mount Royal. And uh, it's a, th it probably has a more formal name. I just think of it as the 360 room. Eric would probably know. Immersion probably Studio. Immersion Studio. See, it has an actual more official sounding name than the 360 room. And, um, that room is designed with uh, projectors. So it's not a virtual space at all. There's no headgear. It's a, a like a classroom sized room with projectors on the walls that project to all the walls. So you can project a 360 scene all the way around. It's got so much potential for doing like fun things like having um, say a poster conference session. And instead of having the students have to print out all these posters that cost money and have, you know, just project them all onto the walls. And then when you want to put up different posters, you do different projection, right? And so you just project them full size on the walls and the people could stand in front of them and give the talks and stuff. And they're like, it's, it's cool. It's like there's these uh, short throw projectors that are way up near the roof so you can stand right close to the wall and you don't block the projectors view because they kind of shoot down from the roof it's it's really a really cool room but again it uses some of the same thing like uh in terms of the 360 pictures that you would use in vr they're the same kind of things you would project on those walls it's really the same it's it, in the background it's the same it's just a different projection method at how you view it at the end so, you know, now that we're in this kind of lockdown with COVID and, um, you know, with the online education, like, do you think uh, this uh, VR that it could become like the future standard uh, for online? Like, do you... Yeah, I, I do, actually. I know Eric sort of asked that question earlier, and I really... I really do. I, I don't know if everybody thinks that way, but I think for online education, again, I don't think... I, I think that there's very important elements to being live with people that at this point is still really important. But um, I think for online education, the opportunities that you can provide students in a virtual environment, it, it, it's just broader. 
you can just do so much more in that environment as soon as you get into VR. It just opens up all the possibilities. You can do all the stuff you used to do in online teaching plus a whole bunch more stuff. And so it creates that, like I said, it creates that sense of community, that sense of feel. Um, you know, this is just anecdotally, but in talking to students that are in these spaces, um, they really enjoy the virtual environment. Like being in these virtual rooms, it's just like, it, it really, you know, having sat in my house a lot in during COVID-19, I have to say it's, I've explained it to a few people. When I jump into VR and I spend some time in there, let's say I spend an hour or two either working on environments or putting together a presentation or giving a presentation, whatever the case may be. Um, when you take the headset off, it really does feel like you just left your house for a couple of hours and you came back and now you're back at your house. Like it feels in your mind like you went somewhere else. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, you really can have that experience. You know, you sit at home all day working, you have that sort of claustrophobic feeling of I'm still in my house. I'm still in my house. Spend a few hours in VR. I don't have that feeling anymore. It starts to go away. Like you just, you know, you go to public events in VR, you bump into people afterwards, you hang out, you chat with people for a little bit, then you come back, to, you know, you take the headgear off and you're back in your room. And uh, yeah, it feels like you were out in different events and you went to different rooms. And then, and then there's certain rooms in alt space that um, either I've gone to a lot because I made them or ones that get used all the time. Like the classroom we used for my Unity course in VR. That, because I went to that same room many times with the same people there that really really felt like I went somewhere like because you know that had its own that had its own energy and its own people and its own community and everything so I went to the space and then I came back home like it really did feel like I went to class so uh, I think that's one of the potential benefits that you certainly don't get with more traditional online teaching methods at this point and, and so I think you can build community and you can you can do collaborative learning and these types of things in VR in a way that is very difficult to do or do as well in some of the other platforms that are available. And just to build on what you, what you asked, Chris, I mean, I mean, Tony and I had met about his course. I think it was in the fall 2019, Tony is when you first mm -hmm. told me about yep. it. We had some meetings about other stuff. We were, you know, I was getting, figuring out journals and stuff for you. And then we were <laughs> having, but we, we, you know, I, we, Tony and I would bump into each other. I would bump into our other colleague, Evelyn, um, and being the liaison librarian for the department, I'm used to bumping into people and they would ask me things like, would you be able to teach it? Like, what are your thoughts if I were to do this? How would, how could you help me support? And then it was all gone. It was all taken away. And, and I think you and I spoke, Tony, after we started meeting about your course in VR, that it was, I was, I mean, I'm pretty introverted. I would say very, if not moderate <laughs> and but even that, I really value those conversations with the people that I talk to regularly, and they were all gone. And it was, you know, for us to be able to sit in VR and talk about it and see Anna again, who used to work the, down the hall for me, it's, it is like reduced some of that anxiety, kind of going back to what you originally said about kind of a, there's a social loss. And, mm -hmm. and it's hard to recreate some of the best ideas I've ever come up with, either research or teaching, were accidental conversations. And I, mm -hmm. and I don't, yeah, yeah. that's the loss. I can't hang out on Zoom all day. My computer fans will go crazy. Like, it's like, it's impossible. But when VR, it was like, we could all just jump in and 
that was kind of almost back. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It has that feel. Like we've had a couple of, we've had a number of meetings about this course, and obviously we meet in VR to have a conversation about the VR course, right? So we all jump into these VR spaces, and yeah, it allows you to just have that kind of casual, comfortable conversation with your colleagues again, where you know you can joke a little bit, and you can. It just feels much more natural and comfortable, and and you get that sort of spontaneous conversation where interesting ideas come out of, you know, um, and and that's one of the things I see that that leads me to believe that it has a lot of potential. Um, I've done that both, you know, obviously with your group. I've had some other people that I collaborate with, other uh, researchers I collaborate with, and we've gone to a point where we've had academic meetings, and then after the academic meetings, had full-on social meetings where we'll go to like a VR beach and just hang out. You know, (laughs) literally going to a VR beach and like hanging out in the hot tub and just chatting. You know, that's pretty amazing. And you can change your clothes on the fly, by the way, for folks who haven't tried it. Yeah, I do that all the time. Yes, I've watched Eric do this. You're just sitting there in the middle of a meeting and all of a sudden his shirt changes. Pop. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty funny. It's uh, it's funny, like how you were describing uh, being in that room that you have been before. Um, It's almost uh, like our current version of Total Recall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, it, it is. And it, you know, uh, I say this stuff and obviously another one that comes up is ready player one, right. Is this whole oh, yeah. like big virtual worlds and, and, you know, you watch ready player one, obviously we're nowhere near where ready player one is, was in the movie, um, and in the book, but, uh, but it amazes me even since ready player one came out. And I think how far away we were from that future. And then I think even today, how far away we are from that future. We're way closer than I thought we would have been back then. <laughs> like it's, it's just exploding. So yeah, there's still a long way to go. Right. Um, and like I said, there are pros and cons to, to all different aspects of it, but yeah, that there, there's no other digital platform I know that creates that sense of really feeling like you're there with another person. So with this course, like, are you thinking of, uh, I mean, obviously we had to go and deal with the pandemic and uh, when do you think the earliest that you're going to be able to have students? I mean, it seems like this might be like an opportune time uh, to escape your your home. And then uh, I don't even know what you would need, like equipment wise and stuff. Well, for for a user, really, all you need is a VR headset. So whatever one you want, most of the platforms like Altspace are, they'll take, uh, they'll, they'll allow you to use just about any VR headset. Um, so they're cross-platform that way. Um, with, uh, sorry, what was the first part of your question again? I was just uh, wondering, like when, like with your course, like- Oh when, yeah, the course timing, sorry. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it coming out soon? Or, I mean, if, if you had more time, I'm sure, like, cause I, I always say um, for an online course, it it can take like six to nine months to just prep it, right? Yeah. And, uh, well, the ch- and obviously we've been working pretty hard over the summer. And, yeah. Uh, even, the, well, the challenge- probably not there yet. Well, the challenge with the new course or with the course that will be completely taught in VR is it's not just a new teaching platform it's actually a brand new course to the university so before we can teach it we still have to go through the whole process of course approval at the university so it has to go through all the stages of getting approved um, as a course not just as a vr course Um, so the earliest we can actually have it in the calendar and have students register for it will be next september so in a year from now that's when we'll teach the first section of it that's the plan at this point 
And so in that course, basically, instead of a textbook, you'll be asked to, as a student just to buy it, you know, the, the low end. Yeah, or high headset. end if you want, whatever you want to buy, right? Yeah, yeah the idea is they'll simply purchase their own headset um, and then set up an Altspace account. And um, we're going to work uh, with uh, Eric and other people at the library. Anna, who's part of our team, um, she's helping to set up things like training modules for students so that they'll be able to uh, follow some videos and so forth and how to set up their account and how to set up their avatar and, you know, all the things they need for the course. And yeah, and then they log into the course and we just basically go from there. The nice thing is, I mean, I bet if you ask most university undergraduates, what would you rather have at the end of a course, a textbook or a VR headset? I bet most would rather have a VR headset. So, Oh, totally. <laughs> well, and it's it more repurposable, right? I mean, like right. I understand that. I mean, I, I have done work in open educational resources, which is largely to reduce student costs. So people say $150, $200 for a headset. I'm thinking, yeah, but you learn a skill from having that. I mean, not everybody can use a headset effectively. You, you learn how to use the platform and then you leave with a piece of technology, essentially a head mounted computer. So it's actually quite a, a ridiculously affordable deal when you consider what a VR headset can do. I mean, I played through Vader Immortal, which is a pretty unbelievable, the ultimate Jedi <laughs> simulator. And it's like, that alone is worth the $200 entry point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did like that point where Darth Vader walks up to you for the first time he comes in the room. And the, the, the one thing you get from VR is that sense of size and scale. And all of a sudden, he is intimidating. Here. Yeah, he's like eight feet tall and he's hugely intimidating in a way that you'd never feel on a flat screen, right? It's just this big mass comes to you and he's, he's crazy. You'll have to play Half-Life Alex. That'll be the, uh, I uh, think that's the pinnacle. I have been playing it. I'm about halfway through the game. Um, that requires a headset that, um, well, actually, that's not true. The Oculus Quest can do it now, but you have to connect your Oculus Quest to your computer. You can't use it cordless. Um, but yeah, the graphics in that game have literally taken VR to a whole other level. It is it is the best looking game I've ever seen or played. Um Fantastic game, fantastic game. I mean, gory, terrifying. I'll tell you, horror games in VR are so terrifying. You know, jump scares in VR when things can jump at you from all 360 directions, pretty terrifying, but fun if you're into that sort of thing. So we're kind of close to the, the end of our major questions here before we get to the rapid fire question section. So Tony, is there anything or I mean, you've talked a lot about a, a variety of groups that you're working with and educators in VR, but is there anything or anyone that you'd like to plug or give a shout out to listeners, things that we could perhaps put in the show notes? Uh, yeah, there's a couple things in particular. I mean, I think the first person I want to say thank you to is Nicholas, the guy who runs uh, computing science in VR. Um, without him, I wouldn't have been able to as easily learn all of this Unity content. And uh, so uh, those courses come highly recommended. If you float around in uh, Altspace, you'll see the CS in VR intro events. They have them all the time. And then he has enrollments at different, different groups that are in different stages moving through um, several different courses. So I took the introduction to Unity first, and then I took world building from him as well. Um, so that, those were fantastic. And his company is called uh, Universe with the, the V and the R in capitals. <laughs> 
in the word universe. Um, So he's great. And then, of course, everybody in educators in VR, Laurel, and um, the researchers in VR team that I work with, uh, so fantastic. Um, There's a lady named Evelyn, not the same Evelyn we've been talking about here, but another Evelyn who runs the uh, researchers in VR team, and she started it. Uh, Just a fantastic personality. So there's there's just... you know, and in a broader sense, I would say the alt space community as a whole, the vast majority of the people that are part of that community have been so inspirational and they're all there because they're excited about it. So it's really fun to be part of a group of people that are just excited about what they're doing. I mean, sometimes when you first jump into alt space, the first place you're going to end up is like something like the campfire with a lot of people who are just kind of new to it and they're all kind of running around. It tends to be a lot of younger people in this. Some people go in the first time and they're like, oh, this is just too much, too overwhelming, all these people in my face. But if you take a moment to move to some quieter spaces and start to learn and find your community within the broader community, um, I, I highly recommend it. I've just been so impressed with that group. I mean, the community itself in alt space is one of the reasons why we chose the platform because I wanted my students going into a positive space, positive in all those ways that you think about a space being positive. And I find that that's mostly what we get in alt space. And so, just a general, you know, thank you to the whole alt space community. I think that's a perfect uh, note to wrap up our regular questions on. That's, and I would agree with you. The alt space community is pretty special, even from my own limited experience. It's pretty cool. So we have another section in our podcast. We call this the rapid fire questions section. Oh, this is so going to be great. <laughs> for our listeners, we ask lighthearted, totally non-controversial, non-political questions that the guest has not seen because uh, they're fun, you know. <laughs> and hopefully it doesn't create too much anxiety. We Maybe Tony can bring us out of that anxiety. He has strategies to do so. But um, So are you ready, Tony? I am always ready. Okay. Mac mm-hmm. or PC? PC all the way. iPhone or Android? Same thing, Android all the way. I'm just not an I guy. That's fair. <laughs> Standing or sitting desk? Ooh, mix. So sitting at home usually, because I tend to spend a lot of time working in front of my Unity and all the rest of that. Uh, But my work office is a standing desk, and I really like that because I tend to be in, work a little bit, and then leave. Ebook or paper? Ebook. I'm an ebook guy for sure. Synchronous, asynchronous, or hybrid? Asynchronous. I just like the flexibility of teaching a course um, in in this model right now where it's so difficult for our students to be able to do everything synchronously right now. So I I like asynchronous and I can shoot my cool VR videos for that. So cable or streaming streaming. Okay. So we have a, we have some logic built into these questions. So if Uh guest chooses streaming platform of choice, Apple TV, Crave, Disney plus, HBO, Hulu, Netflix, or Prime Video? I watch a lot of Crave. I Crave, Netflix, and Prime are the three there that I listen to or that I watch the most. So somewhere in a mix of those. More than one answer is totally fine. Web browser of choice. Google Chrome. Google Meet, Skype, Zoom, or other? I'm just going to say other because you know where I want to go. I just want to go to alt space. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, you can add to that. Well, the, the, the only add to that I would say is uh, probably Google Meet over Zoom, actually. 
just really? because of yeah yeah just i i think partly because our institution is more of a google institution and so everybody's just more it just seems like it interfaces a little easier not that i have much experience with either to be honest with you because i just have all my meetings in alt space mr rogers or mr dress up oh i'm gonna date myself here really and go all the way back to mr dress up I don't know how many people listening to this even know what that was. This little guy, and he had the, the the cabinet that opened with the clothes in it. And didn't he have like Casey and Finnegan, the puppets? Yeah, Mr. Dress Up all the way when I was a kid. Coffee or tea? Coffee. I'm a coffee Batman, guy. Batman or Superman? I'm going to answer neither. I'm not a superhero guy. I don't watch the Marvel movies, you know, not my thing. Console or PC gaming? Well, PC. Yeah, I'm a PC gamer. Always was right back from the day. Half-Life, like the you talked about Half-Life Alex. The original Half-Life way back in the day was one of my favorite PC video games of all time. I just replayed it. It was uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi? Uh, neither. I don't drink pop. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Dogs. I am such a dog lover. Anybody, people who know me know that like me and my dog are like connected in like a weird kind of almost <laughs> inappropriate way. Star Wars or Star Trek? Wars. Star Wars all the way. Loved it. Stood in line for hours to go to Empire Strikes Back when it was in the theaters when I was a kid. Oh, I wish I could have been there with you. It was a bit just before my time. Yeah. And Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with Backstreet Boys. You know, yes. the only, and the only reason why is because that Backstreet's Back song, I don't know, if, you know, that one? Backstreet's Back, all right. Yeah, can that we sound one. like that? Yeah, you can do whatever you like with that. <laughs> um, yeah, that song got stuck in my head for years, I think, so I'm going to go with Backstreet Boys. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, rock your body. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. Rock your body right. Back streets, back, all right. It's funny, there's a Spotify playlist called Throwback. It's one of the ones that Spotify makes, and it's just loaded with that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> You're well, making that's... me old here. That's pretty much what we have for this episode. So, uh, Tony, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking your evening out to let us ask you all these super cool questions about your VR work. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It's uh, always fun to chat about. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined 
and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A. Everybody, yeah, yeah, rock your body, yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah, yeah, rock your body right. Back streets, back, all right. Yeah, that one.